just a couple verses. I just want to talk for a few minutes this morning. Um, this idea that we've been, that when Jesus came to the cross, I think where, as Sue was saying, where Jesus came and the cross, it, we were looking at how it had to be in that time, that the, all that the crucifixion represented in the Roman uh, Empire, Jesus submitted himself to that. But the, the two things that we looked at at the end was that first, Pilate said, don't you understand that I have the authority to let you go or to kill you? And Jesus looks at him and says, you have actually no authority except what's been given to you. So first, even though he came, he gave himself, he humbled himself, the scripture says. And he did not consider it to be equality with God. He did not take his God position, even though they taunted him to do it, and shift what was about to happen. He submitted himself to that. So first off, as God came in the flesh, the the crucifixion was not something that was put on him. It was something that he submitted himself to and allowed it to happen to demonstrate the kingdom of this world and his kingdom and that those are not the same thing. They don't function the same way. They don't operate the same way. And we're going to talk about that in depth in in a couple weeks. The second thing that he demonstrated was, and we talked again, that the, the idea of crucifixion, it was a long and agonizing death. It was designed so that the person that had been crucified would be conscious, would be in torment, They could communicate. We saw that with Jesus. But that death would go on slowly for days. And there are historical records where some people, after hanging on the cross for extended periods of time, somebody actually took them down and they survived and went on to live beyond the cross. So the purpose wasn't the execution because they can, they can kill you quickly. The purpose was public display of shame and torment to establish in everybody's mind the government has all the power and you have none of the power. And if you cross our power, you will always lose and it will be very, very painful. So it was all about psychological control of a whole empire. And so God submits himself to that. So now Christ on the cross, they didn't kill him. He gave up his spirit. 
which is why death did not have victory. Death didn't take anything from him. He gave up his spirit. So even for us, the sting of death, in my mind, is I no longer am under the sting of death. I mean, that's what the scripture says, that that's been defeated. But yet we all know we die. So if the sting of death is gone, why are we all still dying? Because the sting of death isn't the last breath. The sting of death is when something is taken from us. And I don't think, as a believer, that's the way it's going to happen for me. Or it needs to happen for you. I've said this multiple times, and you'll just have to hang around with me long enough to see if I'm right or not. I'm living my life with the anticipation and with the conversation, because I think you need to start the conversation early. Don't wait to the last day. But with the conversation, I fully expect the Lord to tell me when I'm going to die. I expect to have that conversation with him. And I actually think in that conversation, I get to choose the timing. Yeah, well, that's just bizarre. Well, maybe it is. But it's biblical. Even under the old covenant, we had saints having conversations. Put everything in order. Today you're going to die. Do I have to die today? Well, here, I'll give you 15 more years. Or put everything in order, go up to the mountain, and I'm going to meet you there. That's not really what I want to talk about today. That's just, that's, that's where we left off. I don't think Sue had that in her notes. That's why I'm just, that was really just a conversation between the two of us so she could update her notes. <laughs> So today what I want to just quickly kind of move on as we're, we're, the focus is we've been called the vocation. I did, not be, I did not get born again with the goal of going to heaven. We've been, many of us in Western culture, we've been trained in our thinking that it's about here on earth, earth is bad, earth is painful, earth is dark, earth is all these things. So as a Christian, my goal is find Jesus, get saved, live good, go to heaven. Amen. Amen. Come forward now. I'm only making light. But that's what we, that's been the sermons that many of us have grown up with. When, when you look at the Bible, if we're going to talk about biblical Christianity, it's always talking just the opposite. It's talking about heaven coming to earth. Amen. That earth becoming a better place because heaven is invading it. That earth becomes a more just place because we live here. That people become better towards each other because we're here and the fruit of the Spirit is at work within us and God is releasing His heart 
on the earth through you, through me, and it's all earth-focused. Now, when I die, I am going to heaven. But that's not the ultimate goal. That's just like the icing on the cake. Because I have a vocation. I was created for a vocation. You were created for a vocation to be a place where the heart of God can meet your heart. And, and as those two hearts meet, something gets released on the earth that starts to change and affect people around you. So our, our, our main thinking here is establishing this place of vocation. So uh, last time I spoke, we, I think I said something to the effect about what was Jesus thinking when he came to the earth? What, what was on his, what, what, how did he see things and the people around him, how did they see things? And so I want to give a little more information on those two things. Uh, I did say that at the time that Jesus came, the most um, popular book of the Old Testament was the book of Daniel. Everybody was talking about, well, almost everybody was talking about Daniel. That was because it, Daniel gave a timeline. And when the rabbis had looked at the timeline, it was lining up with this particular place in history. The captivity was about to end and something was going to happen. And we know historically that in this window of time, there were multiple people that came claiming to be the Messiah. And in the Jewish history, there had been multiple insurrections that had tried to kick off or throw off the Roman occupation. They had all failed miserably and a lot of people had died in it. But the Jews had the reputation of being really a very terroristic group that was always trying to throw the occupying forces out of their country. Uh, so there was a lot of thinking that was going on, a lot of discussion, and Dan it was focused on the book of Daniel. So in Daniel 9, verses 4 and 5, Daniel realizes that the... Um, that there's an ending to the time of captivity. And so he begins to pray for that ending. He begins to set his heart towards, well, when this ends, what is going to happen? So in Daniel 9, 4 and 5, Daniel praying says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rule. One of the things that if, if I was in that, in that time, that historical time as a Jew, one of the things that we talked about that we anticipated that the rabbis were talking about was this idea that we as a people, we mess up. And when we mess up, we end up in captivity. Something happens and we're, we're taken into captivity. But at a certain point, God has mercy on us and brings us out of captivity and reestablishes, reestablishes us as we should have been. And so when, when in their mindset, what they saw was any time that captivity ends that means that sin has been forgiven. 
while I'm in captivity, I'm still under the judgment of sin. But when I come out of captivity, sin has been forgiven. Somehow God has come. He's been merciful. He's brought me out of captivity. And so there was this expectation in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, this expectation that Messiah is coming. When we read the, all of, of uh, Daniel, when we read the other uh, prophetic books, what we start to see is, wow, there's this timeline, and this timeline is right now, like something is going to happen. And we're under the bondage of Rome. Rome has its boot on our neck and won't let up, and we're paying a huge price for that. But when Messiah comes, he is going to liberate us and reestablish us again, and Israel is going to step into its final glory days, which if you read Isaiah 52, God, the, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about what God's going to do when the Messiah comes. And we're all anticipating this... this um, that somehow when the Messiah comes, we are going to be liberated. That finally sin is going to be dealt with. Somehow we're going to find our forgiveness. Somehow we're going to be liberated and Israel is going to be brought back into her rightful place. And so we were all thinking about that, talking about that. What we didn't see, and what they, you know, we, they as the Jewish people of that day, what they didn't see was the idea of a Messiah suffering. That was like totally far into their thinking. There's no way that Messiah is going to come and then is going to be killed. That would make no sense. That's not logical. We're looking for Messiah the liberator, Messiah the king, Messiah the great general, Messiah the one that's going to come, rally the troops. We're going to throw the Romans off and everything is going to be reestablished. You can't have that in someone dying. So it wasn't even in our thinking in that time. We're looking for something entirely different. One of the disciples, Judas, Jesus brings him along. He's a zealot. Well, what were the zealots looking for? They were looking for Messiah. Judas had hooked up with Jesus because he had an anticipation. I think this is the guy. I think this is going to happen. Look, when we travel with him, the power that moves through this man, look how the crowds follow him. I mean, we have 5,000 people that he feeds on a single day. This is amazing. This has never happened in Israel before. This is the, this is the Messiah. And so everybody's moving into that point. And we talked about, I, whenever we talked about it, the idea that even on the Last Supper, here Jesus is breaking bread with them. And right before this... Uh, huge moment in the evening, the boys are all arguing over who's going to be greatest when the kingdom shows up. You know, do I get to be Secretary of Defense? Do I get to be Secretary of Finance? I mean, you know, all this stuff. They're all arguing who's going to be greatest. And Jesus is like, you know, if you guys want to know what the kingdom looks like, it looks like this. And then he washed their feet. We talked about that last week. So they did not get it. And before we put too much criticism on them for not getting it, we don't get it either. And I don't know which is worse, to not get it before the fact or to not get it after the fact. We still minimize. I still minimize. 
the number of days that I find myself in some place of turmoil, whether it's internally or what's going on around me or whatever, where I, I minimize who he is and who I am. And I end up having even more problems and I'm still crying out to God to come and deliver me. And sometimes I think the Lord just looks at me and he goes, deliver you? Would you get up off your lazy butt and walk? I already have delivered you. Stop sitting here acting like nothing has happened. I've given you authority. I've given you dominion. I've given you the power of the Holy Spirit. I've given you my presence. I've given you my love. I've given you my voice. And you're sitting here like you have nothing. Just get up and walk. Okay, so that, in the mindset of the Jewish people, that was what was happening at the time that Jesus came, that they were anticipating something Jerusalem was abuzz with what's going to happen and when's it going to happen and who's it going to be. And there were those that thought Jesus was it. And then as we get to the point of the cross, there's no way that Jesus could be Messiah and die that way because not, no good Jew would die on a cross especially Messiah. It couldn't happen. And there, I, you can do with this what you want. Scripture doesn't really give us much on this, but um, when I read some of the commentaries and a couple different writers on, on Judas, when he went and betrayed Jesus, there's a line of thinking that what he was really thought was going to happen, that was actually going to start the revolution. That when they arrested Jesus, that's going to be the, the lynch point. And everything's going to start to happen because he's not going to allow them to do anything to him because he is Messiah. And so Judas, in his mind, if this line of thinking is correct, Judas, in his mind, thought he was actually getting thing, getting the ball rolling. That Jesus would never allow them to take him. He would never allow them to do to him what he did. And then all of a sudden, G Judas realized he was wrong. Now, you know, um, could he have repented? I think, yes, he absolutely could have. But I think in his own mind, he was so distraught over all that just happened at this decision he had made. That one that, and I'm not sure which he was more distraught about, that they were going to actually kill Jesus or that Jesus didn't stand up and stop it and do what he thought he was going to do. And so, I, as again, Scripture gives us almost nothing on that. So I'm, I'm kind of adding in there, and so you're going to have to do with that what you want. But that was the expectation. Now, and one other verse, uh, set of verses here is in Jeremiah 31, starting with verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This was another prominent section of scripture that the Jews were all paying attention to. That I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put a new law within them. I will write on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will, declare, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This is what they were anticipating when they came out of captivity. When Messiah comes, this is what's going to happen. This, there's a new covenant coming. It's going to be different than the, any covenant we've had. He's going to begin to do something in our hearts that's never been done before. There was this full expectation that when Messiah comes, sin is going to be forgiven. Our iniquities are finally going to be behind us and we're no longer going to have to deal with this anymore. Sin and iniquity is finally going to be put down by Messiah and we're going to be able to step into be the full people that we've been called to be. And in John 4, verse 21, kind of wrap that up with this one. John 4, 21. This is the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But in the hour... But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I love this story. It's just one of my favorites. And the reason I I love this story is that here's this woman who Jesus encounters who hadn't had the best reputation in town. And they happen to just meet at a well. And he turns to her and says, woman, Give me something to drink. And it starts a conversation. And he begins to speak to her. And he begins to reveal her heart. To his, he begins to reveal her heart to her. And the reason I love this story so much is that here he is talking to a Samaritan in Samaria. And when he was back in Jerusalem talking to the Jews... They argued with him, they fought him, they didn't believe him, they made all kinds of other things, and yet here's this Samaritan who in the Jews' minds was less than. 
And she's the one that heard the words, I who speak to you am he. That's just amazing to me. Because Jesus comes to every one of us at some point, and he reveals himself. I am he. I am he. And like we sang, Tom, in the songs that you had led us in this morning, I, he comes because he wants to reveal. I still have to choose. Do I carry on the conversation or do I leave? The amazing thing here, she carried on the conversation and we know, because when you read on in the rest of the scripture, when he left, she went back into the village, told them what she had encountered. The next time he came through that region, they brought the people out in the streets to be healed because of this woman's testimony. I who speak to you am he. And it was enough to convert her heart and to do exactly what Jeremiah said was gonna happen. I'm gonna put it in your heart. No longer will you need anyone to teach you this is he. Because the voice that I put in you will confirm that I am that I am. <sighs> okay, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna stop there. Because I wanna get into atonement, but it, I don't have, it's gonna take more than five minutes to get into atonement. I, I intend in 30 minutes to clear up all the arguments that have happened within the theologians over the last uh, two millennia. Pretty sure I can wrap that up in 30 minutes, get you all out of here as we look at atonement. But I really think if, as we're moving into vocation and we're looking at what have we been called to, we've got to address atonement. What actually, what is scripture actually saying about atonement instead of what us preachers are saying about atonement? We know that us preachers are right, but I want to give you choice anyway. <laughs>